good to be here with you. Uh, for some of you, I haven't had the privilege of me- meeting. Uh, with so many new hands. I'm in the computer business. I introduced myself last night. I'm in the software CAD business. And I was looking at um, a couple of things I needed to clear up from the announcements last night and also from where I'm at. One mistake that was made, Walt, I'm sorry you didn't understand this, is that I'm not speaking on Job. I'm speaking on your job and career planning. <laughs> so you kind of need to get back up there and do that again. Uh, Lon, you, you got a message. Where's Lon? Lon, you got a message, and I'll, I'll just read it to you. Uh, the fact is the good news is that the uh, your tax season is going to be a lot easier this year. They did pass the flat tax. <laughs> and there's also a phone number for the outsourcing service that they'll work with you on. <laughs> and we'd like, to, uh, we'd like to welcome you to the world of restructuring. Is that going to Winston, that's, uh, I think you've got to view that as good news, that uh, I've been here 15 years, and I've seen no accountants, and I think next year the tax law will be down a little bit, so you'll have a lot of accountants and CPAs in here <laughs> looking for some way to get some mercy in this situation. <laughs> Winston is, uh, beg your pardon, Lon, did, did, you, did, did you want me to give you the, the message, is that what that was? This was from Dick Arney. Dick wanted to give me get that to you. Uh, Winston uh, is my genuine hero. I've, I've had the privilege of knowing him for 20 years, and uh, we've had a deep relationship. And I, I think it's earmarked by this year he let me start calling him Winston instead of Mr. Parker. <laughs> and that we that know him and love him, uh, we call him Roadkill on the Information Highway. He's also known as a recovering materialist. <laughs> I couldn't go by any chance to be with you men without noting Lynn Little. Two things I think I want you to observe about his totally unruly display last night. is one of my, I don't want you to forget that he's in the washing business, the cleansing business, and you noticed that he had shrunk that T-shirt, which was evidenced by the protrusion of his stomach. <laughs> And I do want to note that that really was um, intended to be an I instead of an N, an S. I standing for incompetent, but he can't spell, and so he put the S up there instead. He thought that's how he did it. But it's also good to uh, be back this year and see so many guys from the commercial real estate business with us. It, that ebbs and tides with them coming up here, but I know business is good now, so they're back up here. And I don't think, uh, I think the reason they came, Winston, is because they heard we were going to talk on Job, and Job was the first of the great commercial real estate people. <laughs> By evidence of how it went through life. Okay, it's good being with you guys. <laughs> now the handouts are good for all three sessions. Uh, so there may be a temptation to trash them. Please don't, because I'll be weaving in and out of them. <laughs> As of my departure from Atlanta, I had them in a sequence. I was going to speak from them on the airplane. I changed the sequence, and so just bear with me. But the charts are still valid. They just kind of float around in sequence, so you may be dashing back 
page to page. Uh, rules of the engagement are ask any questions you like to anytime you'd like to. And uh, we will really take time to try to pursue those questions down. If I do not complete a given function, I promise you it will not stunt your Christian growth, that you'll be quite all right. The issue is that we handle what we do get our, in, our arms on. Fourth is, I am a firm believer that there are no great teachers, there are just great learners. I mean that, guys. I, we complain about we're a society of being entertained, etc. And though uh, we are very, give, very blessed to have a man like Walt teach us, and he's an extremely gifted guy, I want to say to you the burden of learning is not on him, the burden is on you. And I will in no way stand in his shadow or live to the level he was at, but I want to suggest to you the burden of learning is yours. And though we are prepared to do the best we can, I say I uh, encourage you to take it very seriously. And so turn on your thinking, uh, take the notes you need to, ask the questions you want to, because once it's been exposed, you are now accountable before God. Over the past few years, I've been in the computer business. Over the past few years, I've... Uh, gone through some hard times, and some of you have come back numerous years have heard me discuss the struggles I had with the business. And it was interesting to hear Walt talk about the dilemmas we go through and how those stresses look. And I've seen a variety of different stresses, specifically in the business. I don't want to talk about the family life, but specifically in the business, ranging from sales that there's just no reason they did not come in. I'm an experienced salesman. I know what's going on. I'm not a dullard in the marketing business. I know what it takes to make a good marketing effort. I know when a guy is ready to close. And issues that I would have forecasted in the high percentage they should come down did not come down and did not come down and did not come down and did not come down. Accounts receivables on outstanding companies where we rendered good service to and should have been paying begin to get delayed. Disheartening things of really trying to put plans together and frustrations that just literally had no reason to happen. We have a problem that uh, we did some damage on some jukebox discs, and we're mailing them by Delta Dash overnight. It was absolutely mandatory that arrive in the people's hand the next day because we had a critical executive meeting in 48 hours, and they got lost on Delta Dash. We worked all weekend to get them, took them down on Sunday night, glad to get them in the mail, hoping they would relieve us on some thinking, and we don't know where they went into no man's land. And you chain them together, and, and there was a really a struggling, trying time. And the issue was, what was going on, and, and how do I deal with that? And naturally, that would have pushed me back in to the life of Job in my own studies, of what was going on with God, and what was going on with me. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about Job, etc., and doing the study on Job. And I want to say to you, once I got into Job, I realized that Job was much, much greater than uh, just a study on trials. It's a much greater book than that, and I'm going to try to hand that out, handle that as we go through. But let me preface this by saying, let me give you a summary sheet. I have a group of men that I write letters to and say, would you pray for me in these areas? There's a group of guys I call on around the nation to pray for me. At the end of the siege, when the smoke lifted a little bit and the curse went away and the plague fell off, and all of a sudden 
the sale did come down and the guy did pay his bill and we put something in Delta Dash and it got there and on and on and on. As that began to unfold and things began to go straight, I wrote a letter to the guy saying, I would like to review with you the things I learned as I went through that, my observations as I went through the scriptures. Except I don't want to share those with you. And that is this chart. And I don't think this is on the first page. If anything, it's probably on the second page. Is it on the second page? No. Uh, last page? Thank you. These are seven observations I made, and I just want to take time to note these and so you can kind of jot them down and think on them. First, I want to say to you that the trial that I went through tested my commitment to God's way and to God's plan. Could I trust God for what was in my best interest? Could I believe that God was dealing with me totally in my best interest? Should I jerk it away and rescue the issue, even though I'm not sure I could have? Should I take the temptation and run with it? Now, commitment means to eliminate my options or my escape clauses to my convictions. Now, Walt's done a great discussion on options. And so I don't know that I need to go back over it, guys. But one thing in our society that my children have a lot of and that I'm given because I have money and because I have intellect and because I'm in this society is a ton of options. And it's one of the curse of the Christian walk because we keep wanting to Exercise those options. And I want to suggest to you one of the themes in the Christian walk is the elimination of options. The walk with God, as Walt once told me, is like the bungee card jump. You walk to the edge, declare your faith in God, embrace His commandments, and leap off, hoping that the card is really going to do what He said it was going to do. And as you're sailing through the air, you just keep reviewing your verses, right? <laughs> okay, John 14, 21. <laughs> Knowing that card's going to grab you. But it's the elimination of options such that you become constrained that you have no way of escape. And though then you begin to endure, and in that endurance, you begin to know God. Note that the word endurance in the Scripture means not to tolerate. Listen but to choose to experience it. Are you with me on that? It's not just to tolerate it and put up with it, but it's to choose that I will take this load because it's the load I should have. Second observation. As I get older, trials get harder because there is less runway to recover. Guys, I see the end of the runway. I'm pulling back on the stick. I'm trying to get this dog airborne. Therefore, we better build up a strong working relationship to God now to anchor our hope and sense of reality. I was thought about David. After this horrific life, as David approaches his 60s, or his early 60s, he goes out to battle with the giants for the second time. And in the battle, he gets weary, and he can't sustain the fight, and he's ready to be killed, and a young buck jumps in, slays the giant, and they take David off to the side and say to David, David, don't you're the great light of Israel. We don't want that put out. We want you out of the battlefield. So David goes back, sits in his castle, and decides to take a census. Why did he take the census? 
Guys, at 58, as I battle the giants, and no, I can't battle them anymore. I know I'm not strong enough to pull all the things off I thought I could pull off. When I know I don't get over as many more times, that if this baby sinks in the harbor, I don't know if I can get it afloat again and get out of here. That I may not be able to rescue my family financially. And I may take the embarrassment of all the things not working out. I go and take a census to see, really, am I tough as I thought I was? How many people really think I'm great? What does my bank account look like? What have I accumulated? That is our census. Now, God did not take kindly to the census. And this is the one that Lon brought up where he said that he took three options. Let me remind you of two things about those three options that Lon did not tell you. God, David took God in control of the third option. In that third option, 70,000 Israelites died. God said it's only going to last. I mean, it's in God's hands. It's only going to last three days. But David still goes to him on the second day and said, Can we review the third day? So I'm suggesting to you guys that you better be building up a dynamic, strong relationship to God because you're going to need it as you get older. Third one is hard work, clean living, service to others will not buy me prosperity. Though it is hard a thing to believe, it is not committed by God. Now, guys, I knew that here. But when it really got tough and the fire raged and I became afraid, when I was afraid it was all going to crumble around me and I was going to start over and didn't know exactly what I was going to do, was going to have to put up with the embarrassment of bankruptcy. This great Christian guy was going to have to go bankrupt and show that he's incompetent and reveal the truth that's been hidden for so all these many years <laughs> and live with the reality of his life, I said to myself, and much to my shame, God, don't forget what I've been doing for you. That hidden in a deep corner of my life was this thing that I was still holding on to that probably I could hope, grab hold, hope in my righteousness. And it was an embarrassment to me. But I knew it was there. And I suggest to you that you look hard at that. And remember why you are committed to the service to others. And it ain't to build up kudos so you're going to dodge the bullet in this life. Fourth. Jesus prayed, your will be done. Your kingdom come. This truly reflects a wise prayer. Now, guys, I want to tell you that when the chips hit and I kept trying to figure out how to sort it out, I began to understand I did not even know how to pray in my best interest. I really got to the point. I didn't know how to pray it. I didn't know to say, well, God, what I want is this contract to come down. I really want this to happen. God, get that guy to do this for me. And I began to realize that I was afraid that if it did happen, I didn't know if I was really going to be able to handle it. And there was a point that I got to that I had to understand that thou will be done, thy kingdom come. And I begin to realize that that is the prayer that should punctuate every one of my prayers. Guys, I pray every day, God, shield and hedge Satan for me and my family. And I pray right after, but your will be done. I don't want Satan in a city block of me. But I would prefer God doing what he knows is right 
than what I figured out I'd like to have. That's a, it was a tough lesson for me to go down on. But I encourage you to think about that. Fifth, circumstances does not define God, but God defines circumstances. And Walt alluded to this also, but let me make a couple of comments to me. came to my conclusion that circumstances will be a determinant on how I view all of my life. How do I explain my circumstances? In my youth and my strength, I wanted to explain them away as my great capabilities brought us to here. Because of hard work, I have conquered the mountain. I really don't want to take a lot of credit for some of the areas I'm in now, some of the circumstances that come up. But how a man deals with his circumstances becomes critical. Because, let me tell you just a couple of thoughts. If you decide that God is just allowing it to happen, then you must conclude, you, you, will, you will force the conclusion that if I work hard enough and good enough, everything will turn out good. The good guys win, the bad guys lose, and somehow the poor is taken care of. Because you and I cannot live with the ambiguity of circumstances that do not have symmetry or logic. We cannot deal with that. We will do every mental gyration we can to justify it and straighten it out. I'll go to every every gyration. If you don't believe me, look at some of the aberrations of the denominations we have today. Look at the aberrations explaining away why things are happening the way they're happening. And if we don't let God be the sovereign God and the anchor to circumstances, we will become distorted in our view of how we just uh, to rid ourselves of the ambiguity. See, God says circumstances will always be ambiguous to you. But, underline, but, I'm in control. And I have your best interest at heart. And rest with that truth, guys. But it will be ambiguous. You ain't going to sort out the left from the right or the top from the bottom a lot of times. But I want to tell you, we must get an answer to circumstances. And if you don't accept God's answer, you'll go into great distortion. Sixth conclusion I said, that God rescued me from a lot of evil. During this time I was reading the story of David and Nabal. And during that time I realized that David praised Nabal's wife and praised God because of her advice through God that he had avoided some evil that would have haunted him the rest of the life he'd gone and killed Nabal and the guys. I looked back on my life and I saw some of the business stuff and I saw some business taken away from me that I can tell you today, guys, that if we'd gotten that business, it would have bankrupted us. We could not have handled it. But I wanted it so bad, I would have given anything to get it. And it was promised to us. I can go you through this story. It was ours. They were going to give it to us. And then it got jerked away at the last minute. And I look back over my life and how many times I came to very evil positions and God simply rescued me. Jesus says in his Lord prayer, God deliver us from evil. And it took on a brand new meaning to me as I came out of this. It's a prayer I had not prayed in years. I'd stopped praying. it. I was going to deliver from evil because the Holy Spirit was going to give me the right way to do things. That's not what he's speaking about. It's for keeping you and I from making insane, inane judgments and getting ourselves in places where we don't belong. Guys, at all times, with the best evidence you have before your hands, 
you're always dealing with only half a loaf. <laughs> and you better hope God's intervening. The seventh one. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No trial or temptation will overtake you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation or the trial will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Guys, I want to tell you, that is a true command. And it was proven, but we got awfully close. I could see over the ledge. Many a time I had to wake up and go back and review that. The second thing I want to go over with you at that verse is, it revealed in me something that I found very distasteful. And the thing that scared me the most was not the tragedy that occurred to friends around me. It wasn't even the pain on my own family. It was the embarrassment I would have suffered if I had become financially bankrupt. I'm trying to say to you that as much as I would say to you that money was not the issue, it had elevated itself to a level beyond any of my comprehension in my mental well-being. Am I making sense to you? It absolutely scared me to death. I did not believe that was true of me. But I begin to review things, and I would fret and worry, and I'd say to myself logically, what does it matter if you go bankrupt? You'll just live. You'll listen to the deal. There's souls to be saved. There's kingdoms to be done. There's the word to be preached. And I said, yeah, yeah, but, but, man, I don't want to go through that embarrassment. How will I explain it to my kids? Because they really think I'm a smart guy. I got this bluff going. And I am this, quote, successful business Christian man. Yeah, man, we can work this, guys. God loves me, and I love God, and He makes me successful, and everything works in ticks. It's going to be embarrassing to God if I go down. <laughs> and guys, it revealed something into me, and I've, I've talked to my buddies about it, that was very, very embarrassing to me. But that one of the major barriers of fear in my life, more so than my health even, was my fear of failure financially. Mm. So what I did, what I like to do, is go over the book of Job with you. And this is not in your deal. I like to go through a series of sessions. Session one, I like to kind of overview the book of Job. We're just going to overview this morning. I want to uh, model, uh, talk about the God-man relationship. I see in the book a paradigm being drawn out, and I'm going to try to illustrate the paradigm, the lessons we can learn from the paradigm. I want to talk about man's attempt to redefine that relationship, and I'll just quickly talk about a biblical view of testing and maybe why God takes us through tests. Tomorrow I want to talk about what we can learn about man's response to God's trial and circumstance. And tomorrow morning, the second session, I'd like to talk to you about what we can learn about God and Satan in this. So that's what I'd like to try to get us done, done with us. Romans 5, 3-5 through 5 said, is, In all this, let us rejoice in our tribulation. Knowing tribulation produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
and hope does not disappoint us. Sound familiar to everything that's being said? Let me pray for us. God, we uh, pray now that as we open up your word, that uh, you will go before me and anoint my lips, that I'll say the words you'd have me say. God, I am humble in the thoughts that I can break your word. Thank you that you have rescued us from hell. Thank you that you have our best interest at heart. Thank you, God, that you have given us illustrations in the Bible that tell us of your loving grace in handling the destiny of man. God, you said that the Old Testament is so that we may have hope and that we may have uh, strength to live in our days on this earth. Let us draw from Job, God, a new hope and a new commitment to your sovereignty in our life. Above all, God, let us know you better and let us draw close to you in love. Amen. Let me just go over a little bit about the booklet, the book itself. The book of Job, I saw in breaking up in four areas, and I'm going to expand on that in just a minute. Where we first get a view of God's reality in chapters 1 through 2. Man trying to figure out what in the world's going on with God, 3 through 37. Notice we spent more time on what man's trying to figure out than God giving us about himself. Then God realigns Job's thinking in 38 through 41. And then God blesses in 42. If you go to the second side of that real quickly. When was the book written? Uh, it was written about the patriarch time. It's pretty evident that it was written about uh, Abraham's time, so it's a very, very old book in the Bible. Why would you say that? One, because these people lived to be of a hundred, above 140 years of age. The, uh, the longevity of their life is not found in the Mosaic times. Secondly, their barter system is not one of coinage or money. It is of animals, which is the barter system of Abraham. That's how they counted their wealth at that time. Third, there is no indication of Israel's existence or no indication of the law or no indication of sacrifices in the sense of a uh, Levitical priesthood. So it gives you the idea it's before then. And so it appears that it was a book that was written long before, or excuse me, it's a story about a person that occurred long before the Mosaic time, morally around the Abrahamic time. Now, when it was documented, when it was put to pen, is another question. And I have no idea when it was put to pen. I read a lot of the debates it was during Jeremiah's time, etc. I don't think it really means a hill of beans. And so we'll just go on from there. But it was penned at a later time. But the story comes out of that area. It is somebody that God mentions because, excuse me, that God respects because he is put up as a standard of righteousness in the book of Ezekiel. Where he says to them, to Israel, you guys have, uh, it's coming down on you. You're going to really pay the price. And even if Job lived here himself, as righteous as he was, the only guy he would bail out is himself. He wouldn't bail you guys out. It's a, he's used as a model of perseverance and endurance in the book of James. And so he's a man, as you, as you review over that, is worthy of our review. The key themes and the key words of the book is God's sovereignty. 
That is, though we, if I said to you, tell me what Job's about, you would immediately sell you to me trial and tribulation. And no, it's really an ex, it's a, a document on the sovereignty of God and God working his will across time with this man and these, and these men, these people that are there. It tells us a lot about God and how God deals with things. It, has a, it does talk about trial. It speaks a great deal about the integrity of man and how much importance God puts on it. And there's a great deal about hope, which is interesting to me how much has been said about hope so far since we've been here. Now, out of that first part, I went so far as to draw you a paradigm that summed up the book for you, or drew you a model of this. As you all know, I am an incurable diagrammer. I love to diagram things to try to see if I can get it down where we get our hands on it. And I must say that I was led by the Holy Spirit one night when I did this. And it is up for canonization late this afternoon. So you'll be glad to hear that. What's going on in the book of Job? And if you'll allow me the privilege of focusing right in here, I want to try to show to you what I perceive. In chapters 1 and 2, we get an unusual view of God, the angels, and Satan in action. Now, guys, as I've searched the scriptures, I have found no other place, no other place in the scriptures where we see God transacting business in the courts. And here we see God transacting his business. He's talking, he's reviewing the angels, he's reviewing Satan. We see God having an interchange with Satan. We see some of God's thinking. We see Satan's thinking. We see it revealed in front of us. And it's very interesting that we get to see this. And so it's really a great set of chapters to review because I know of no other chapters that gives you a window in to God's economy like these two chapters do. I don't know of any other one. As you see this picture unfold, you see that they have a transaction which is going to affect man. They're going to do some things over here that decide that's going to affect the guys on this side. And there appears to be a wall in this book between 1 and 2 and 3 through 37 in which God is separated. God in his economy is separated from man in his economy. Now there's some interesting things about this wall. One of them is God and the angels can look through the wall and see man. But man, man turns and looks back, he can't see back through the glass. So man is not dealing with a full loaf of knowledge. God is stirring and transacting business on this side to his end and his glory in which we only know a few of the pieces. That guys, reality is here. It is not here. We keep wanting to say this is reality. And we want to see reality through circumstance, and I want to suggest to you you're looking at less than half a loaf. That God defines the circumstance, which is so clearly illustrated in the book of Job. But when we see the men debate here in 3 through 37, what are they debating about? As I view this circumstance, what do I know about God? As opposed to God gave me this circumstance, how am I to respond? Are you with me? Life, it's, this diagram describes, is like the fact that we have 
three, four, five, six pieces of the puzzle out of a 10,000 piece puzzle. And we're trying to fit them together to figure out the whole picture. Now let me tell you some things about this puzzle. When I give it to you, you have no corners. And I also want to give you, tell you, I'm going to give you a few pieces that don't fit. Now you only got four out of the 10,000. Now I want you to tell me what the picture is. But we will grab things like our circumstance, our health, our provision, our gifts, and then we'll make these massive determinations about who God is, and God says you got the picture upside down. I'm determining all these things over here, and I am who I am because who I declare I am. These things are to work in your life to prepare you to be with me. Are we together? And 337 is the debate of the men trying to figure out how in the world they are going to get this job done. Now, if you went back to this real quickly, these are all the players in the game. And they have a debate. Number one is between Satan and God. Debate number two is between these guys, which is 3 through 37. And then we have a dissertation, number three. This is not a debate. God comes back and has a dissertation with Job. He doesn't ask, well, Job, would you like to discuss this? He just tells him where it is, and, and we kind of pack up our bag and go home after that discussion. And so that's what's going on over here. But God said, there's some things you must understand. What is over here is not what it was over there. But guys, I've given you traces because even though you see through the glass dimly, I've given you traces that you can know enough about me to make the journey. I've not told you all, but I've given you enough. And it's like feeling on the wall to get the touchstones to understand what's on the other side of the wall. And he gives us his word. And he gives us faith and hope and power of the Holy Spirit to reveal. Because see, what I do is I walk up to the wall, stand on my tiptoes and want to see over to see what's going on. And God says, you can't do that. The wall's too high. I'm going to let you see dimly, but I'm not going to let you see the whole picture. But I've given you the life of Jesus. I've given you prayer. I've given you pain. I've given you the creation to look at. I've given you all of life's journey. And through this, you can learn. You can feel what I'm trying to teach you. And I will equip you through these things to be my man on this side that who is dealing with a half a loaf can become my man and prepare yourself for being over here. So far, so good. So we start off in one through two. God and Satan decide to do some things. They start up on this side. Three through 37, we try to sort through what's going on. And we will discuss that tomorrow morning, what, they, what all the stuff they went through and what they decided. And then 38 through 41, God in a whirlwind looks around the wall and says some things to Job through the whirlwind. And that's what is going on in their discussion. Now in the... Excuse me.
the players that are in this game, which is interesting, are that's God, Satan, Job, and then he has his three friends. And we say they're not friends, maybe, but I want to suggest to you they are friends. They come and sit with him a week before they say a word. They comfort him. They try to encourage him. Noticing that everybody else has abandoned him. His brothers and sisters and other acquaintances don't show up in the rest of the story. But as it starts off, Job promotes an argument with them. And then they argue for all these chapters. And the final argument is by the guy Elihu. Now, Job's wife makes a short entry in the book, the second chapter of uh, Job, and makes the great comment, why don't you curse God and die? There's a solution for you. (laughs) He starts off with ten children and they die. God takes their life. He gives them back ten more children. These are the name of his three of his children. He says God tells him he can see to, to the fourth generation. And it's interesting that the brothers and sisters end up in the end, end deal. And I've always been curious where in the world they went in the first part of the book. They just kind of seem to disappear. Job is a man of great stature in his community. And he has great forbearing and he's a guy that has great prestige. He's a rich guy. People listen to him. They come to take notes on him. He's you. He's a man in the gates. He's a man of influence. He strikes a big path. He makes a big path when he walks. And yet he's reduced to debating what in the world is going on in my life. He starts off with these animals. He ends up with these animals. And so the story unfolds of the God and Satan deciding to transact something with Job. God transacting that with Job through Satan. And then God, and then the men debating that. And then God discussing it with Job. Now, there are a number of major lessons that can be learned as an overview to the book. First is, God is a good God. Now, we can take that the evidence of the fact that God comes and double blesses Job at the end as evidence that he's a good God. But I suggest to you that Job never being out of the hands of God and the whole experience reflects to you that God is a good God. I would suggest to you that even as Job machinates about the issue, and turns it and rolls with it. And all these guys are going on. That God does not come down and destroy him. Makes him a good God. That God gives him an audience. Makes him a good God. Guys thematically. To make the journey. You've got to come to a simple belief. And that God is a good God. Irrespective of the evidence. God is a good God. Is a foundational truth. That's the reason we have the Bible to. Verify that. That's when you go through your life, you must take journals and understand God's transactions in your life because you must come to that confidence because that confidence is the prevailing force on which you'll make the total journey. And that is God is a good God. Job reflects that very clearly, that God is a good God. If that is not clearly determined in your mind 
as we talk on the next two sessions. I encourage you to make that as an anchor of your prayer in the coming year. That God would reveal to you through the scriptures, through how he deals with your life, that he is a good God. Then buckle down the seat belt and hold on. Secondly, that there is life after death. Job is evidence that there is life after death. After Job's difficult experience, if you'll recall, he starts off with 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys. God says, I'm going to give him a double portion. So he comes back and gives him 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. We would have expected that's what he should have done. But how many children did he give him back? He gave him 10. But wait a minute, I started with 10. I want my double portion. I, I really don't want twice as many teenagers. But What is my double portion? God says it's 10. Why is it 10? In God's view, the first 10 are dead. It's in our view, the absence from the person, that they're not around. Guys, I'll repeat this in our lesson about God. We anchor a lot of the trials and strain and struggle we have with death. And I want to suggest to you, God does not view death anything like we view death. It's a totally different issue with him. You remember, he's on that other side of the wall. He doesn't have time. He doesn't have chaos. He is total control. Death is a different deal. But it shows in the book of Job that as ten left, he only gave him ten more back. And so we have an indication, not a scientific proof, but we have a strong indicator that there is life after death. That God views it, even in this book, that all he had to do was give Job ten children back to give him a double portion. Thirdly, that there will be sifting. Jesus promised it to Peter that he would be sifted. Which is an interesting verse. It was like, this is something you needed to go through. It's not anything you and I would have chosen, but it really means to, to really run him through the ringer. It's to, do you know what you do when you extrude a metal? You put it in and you stretch it way out. It's like getting bubble gum. You remember you get bubble gum and do that? That's the, that's the picture of sifting. And Jesus said to Peter that he was going to let Satan sift him. Guys, I think we must understand that in our growth, that God will let Satan, or have Satan, sift us. Without pain and without struggle, you cannot grow. I see some of you young guys around the audience. Oh, how easy it is to keep your body in shape. I remember if I got a little out of shape and ran a couple of times, I was back on the target. I'd go grunt through a couple of weight deals, and I'm okay. Guys, I lay off a week from weightlifting or weight from running, and I'm two months in recovery. The body don't come back that fast. And the only way it comes back is by hard work. The only way the muscles respond and grow is by pain and stress and tension. 
The mind does not grow by me watching television and slowly falling into a catatonic coma. The mind grows because I take the time to think and to challenge it and to put in it the things that are of value. Should you study the scriptures for your own mental as well as your spiritual well-being? Should I memorize it for your own mental and spiritual well-being? Should I be actively involved in the protection of and the governing of my mind? And the answer is yes. Guys, I can turn on the TV and turn to a channel called AMC, which is the old American movies, and I can see, listen to me, 20 seconds of a black and white movie and say the movie is, and I can tell you what it is, and I saw it 40 years ago. What does that tell you? Your mind remembers in pictures and it thinks in words. And if you drown your mind in pictures only, you will destroy your capacity to think. It absolutely stuns me how fast I pick an old movie up. I haven't thought about that movie in a jillion years. And I catch two frames of it and I say, oh, I know what that movie is. My mind has retained that stupid picture. They're playing with you in the entertainment world, guys. They are playing with you. They're playing games with your mind. And you should take it very, very seriously about what you're doing. And you should watch over that with great thinking. We're talking about struggling. Then that's the same thing spiritually. God is going to stress you. The problem with a leper is they lose the sense of pain. Therefore, as they break arms or tear their skin or injure themselves, because they have no pain feedback, they cannot guard and go in the right direction. They just continue to bring injury to the body. When my mother was getting advanced in Alzheimer's degree, she used to lay in bed and cross her legs and bed sores would come up on her leg. And I kept saying, what's going on, nurse? And they said, when she goes to sleep, because the brain isn't working right and she's not getting a pain feedback, she does not move her legs. All night long, you're doing this as the body gets the sense of pain, so that you will not do what? Create sores. Because my mother did not have the stress of pain, she could not protect herself and do what was right for herself. Guys, if you do not have struggle, you will not grow. If you are not stressed, you will not grow. If you are not tried by the spiritual dimension of life, in this non-spiritual world, you will not grow as men of God. There is nothing in our society, zero, nothing, inducing you, prompting you, encouraging you to grow spiritually. Nothing. There is nothing that you have at your disposal. You will be going 180 degrees upstream to be a man of God. It is stress. Whatever you think is the logical way, I encourage you to go 180 degrees out of phase with it. The sifting of Satan is to reduce the options to let us look at life at really what it is and stress with it. Okay? Job points his story up. The fourth lesson of Job is you better watch your tongue. Job's wife said, curse God and die, and she had to have ten more children. 
that'll teach her. <laughs> I encourage you to take Job seriously. Think on these things. We'll talk more tomorrow and the next day. Tomorrow will be on the view of man and what we can learn about men from the Job experience. And the last session will be on what are our observations of God. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and ask you to uh, bless this time. Thank you for our time together today. We pray, God, that uh, we will sense your truth in the word. That we will sense the reality of you being in control. That we will be men renewed in our desire for you to have your way with us. God, let us understand our desperate need to be your men. Let us understand our desperate position. Let us have renewed confidence in your goodness. Let us welcome your intervention. Let us grow. Let us be a light in this world because you have our heart. And Jesus, if you could come back today, we would appreciate it. Amen.